everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Jill Zender, and I'm a nurse practitioner in the cardiac ICU at Children's Health in Dallas, Texas. Hi, my name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital, University of Louisville. And my name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University. So today, Deanna, Jill, and I are continuing to celebrate the 25th anniversary of PCICS with a two-part series dedicated to the trailblazing women of Pixis. And in part one, we lifted up the stories of Dr. Nancy Ganiam, Mary Taylor, and Sarah Tabbitt. And today, we have the honor of speaking to Drs. Therese Gillia and Dr. Erica Molitor-Kirsch. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks very much. Hello, I'm Erica Mulder-Kirsch. I am currently a pediatric cardiac intensivist at uh, Children's Minnesota, where I've been just for eight months now. But my first six years of cardiac critical care were in at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, where I helped to establish a CICU. And, and then my following 14 years were at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, where I again helped establish the CICU and uh, served as the chief of cardiac critical care and the director of the cardiac ICU. And I'm Therese Julia. I'm a uh, pediatric cardiologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm director of our cardiac anticoagulation and thrombosis program and our infant single ventricle monitoring program. And I've been with Pixis since the beginning. So tell us a little bit about um, how you first heard about the society, or in your case, Therese, were there for the founding, and what your initial impressions were. Well, I think the first real meeting, to the best of my understanding, was at the, I have the uh, pamphlet, so the Ritz-Carlton, Palm Beach, Florida, October 3 to 5 in 1996. And what I recall, and I'm pretty sure this is right, it was the boys at the bar. It was not, not, um, and not, I'm not saying in a derogatory sense, but that's just the way it was. Anthony Chang was newly in Miami and organized his first meeting, which was the first international symposium on pediatric cardiac intensive care. And it was a terrific meeting. And I um, had recently left Boston and joined DC Children's Department of Cardiology um, and was, you know, really glad to be at the meeting. And Anthony asked the program directors to meet in the bar. And the program directors, of course, were all men, you know, mainly, um, you know, the main one at the time, of course, was David Wessel. And um, they met at the bar. And I think that was the first real meeting of the society <laughs> or the very beginnings of the society, the best, the best I could recall. I feel like that's like a historic story. And I wish this was like video so that everyone could see. Therese literally has a paper copy of the very first, was that like a program? I have all the programs from all the meetings from 1996 on. That's so cool. I was able, I've been to all of them, except there was one in London um, in 2011 that I missed, but the others I've had the opportunity to attend. Wow. That's incredible. So how did you break into the boys club or how did you make your way 
in as one of the initial women in PCICS? I think they needed someone to take the minutes, in all honesty. I mean, I, you know, I, I think they, um, yeah, I, uh, and I was willing to do that. Um, I did a fourth year in cardiac intensive care and cardiac cath in Boston and went to um, DC Children's as a cardiologist who was interested in working in the ICU, but I wasn't a full-fledged cardiac intensivist, so, uh, and I haven't been, or I was a little for a short while here at CHOP, but not then, and um, I was very interested in the care of children with critical heart disease, and it gave me an opportunity to work with people that I highly respected, and it looked like there was, you know, um, a great opportunity to help with that. And I remember talking with Gil Wernoski at one time, and, you know, this was a few years into it, and they were looking for um, members of the board of directors and officers. And I said, you know, I'm really not a cardiac intensivist, but I work in the ICU as a cardiologist at, at DC Children's. And, you know, do, do you think I could put my name in for something. He said, sure, go ahead. So I put it in for secretary and and then did that for 10 years and then on the board of directors, I think for 15. That's awesome. Erica, would you be willing to share with us your first experiences in PCICS? Sure. Um, I were a few years later, I think maybe 99, something like that. And like many others, I remember just a few of us in some small rooms. I remember being at the breakers and the Ritz, I think, in Miami, and just a few people in a room talking about things. My route to being a cardiac intensivist was a little bit different than the other women that have spoken in the last session. I was pediatric critical care trained, not a cardiologist, um, and I had an Air Force commitment after my training. So after that, I was I did three years in a pediatric ICU as a critical care physician in San Antonio at an Air Force hospital. And during that time, I developed an interest in cardiac critical care. And when I was looking at jobs after that and being recruited back to Dallas to be an intensivist, I let them know that I was interested in cardiac critical care. And they said, well, that's great. We're starting an ICU. Why don't you come? I said, well, one problem is I haven't done a lot of cardiac critical care, so I need to get some training. And they said, well, no, you don't need to get training. I said, yeah, I need to get some training. And so they said, well, I'll tell you what, if you can find someone that'll train you in the next six months, we'll pay you and you can go somewhere and get training. I said, okay. Um, the problem with that is there weren't a lot of people doing cardiac critical care training and, you know, 98, 99, I guess this was. And I wasn't sure that anyone was training critical care trained people rather than cardiologists. But being fairly naive, I thought, well, um, I don't know who's doing this, but I found a way to contact David Wessel. And after um, some conversations with him and Steve Roth, they invited me to come for an interview. And then actually they said, well, we don't really do that. But given your situation, we'll try it. So um, they let me come and train for just six months in their cardiac intensive care unit. So I didn't do a full fourth year fellowship, but it, it worked for a lot of reasons. It worked out. I got great training, met a lot of great people there. And because of that, I also heard about PCICS. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. But then um, I remember at these early PCICS meetings, there weren't very many women around. I remember Therese very clearly. I also, um, in addition to Anthony, who put on these great meetings, I remember David Wessel, Steve Roth, and then um, 
the um, treasurer, Tim had, Feltes. Yeah, Tim Feltes at the time, and the was hilarious because he would say, "Okay, well, we have about thirty dollars in our account. We're not really sure how we're going to pay for this." And at that time, even if you gave a small talk. You got a free room at the hotel, all this type of of stuff, great dinners, lots of wine. So it was very funny. It was very different time. I think we'll probably get to this later, but I think the big impacts of all of this was just people collaborating. And from the beginning, it was multidisciplinary. There are anesthesiologists, cardiologists, critical care people, later on, even neonatologists, obviously some surgeons as well. That was really still an important thing in this society. So it was really collaborative, especially for someone who was new and naive to what was going on. You know, we're talking about pioneering women. I think we really were just trying to find our way to do something we loved and yeah, different times for sure. I do have a funny story about um, Boston recruiting you or taking you. Dave Wessel said he had to hire you because you ordered the steak and red wine at dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with him, <laughs> him and Steve. And then uh, they ordered this nasty uh, something called grappa. At oh, the my end. goodness. I Italian, actually drank Yeah, Italian firewater. <laughs> yeah, well, the things you do, it's really rough. I think David Wessel was an incredible force because he's triple boarded in pediatrics, anesthesia, and critical care. And I think that he really changed the tone of the field and, you know, knew all the anesthesiologists and all the cardiac anesthesiologists. So he kind of brought them all into the fold and, you know, and then was a cardiologist and critical care attending as well, which was awesome. A lot of us trained in Boston. There weren't a lot of other options and it was a great place. And I think I really agree about with that about David Wessel and just in general how the field has developed in so many different ways, though it's going to become a little more formalized, I think, eventually. And also the influence of some of the surgeons, you know, there were some, yeah. you know, when I was there, Richard Jonas, Pedro Del Nido, some really amazing interventional cardiologists from whom you could learn a lot. It was an intense place. Once you were there, you're a part of that team forever. And I still am in contact with, with so many of these people. And going back to more how the society has affected my relationships. You know, I never would have met Anthony Chang and Gil Ranofsky, Tim Feltis, all these people and, and still know them on a, you know, they would recognize me and talk to me and I know them by name. And having never worked with some of those people, it's been a really amazing experience. And it really taught me that, you know, if you want something, you just have to ask and doors may open to you. And if you love what you do, things can happen. I don't think any of us thought we would, well, maybe some people did, but I never thought I'd be running a cardiac intensive care unit or something like that. Dr. Castaneda was an incredible force as well. He was very supportive of cardiologists. And and then when David Wessel got to Boston, uh, you know, a real cardiac intensivist, so to speak, although that wasn't wasn't really defined at the time. And I think the way it kind of formed in Boston, at least, was that the surgeons needed reliable people to take care of their kids, their sick kids when they were in the OR. And really, the early people were Peter Lang, Marlene Rabinowicz, and and Roberta Williams. They were incredible cardiologists, really knew the anatomy and knew, knew the physiology. 
and took care of the kids in the ICU without critical care training, any of the three, you know, until David got there and then really, really kind of upped the game. I think it's pretty incredible. The like interdisciplinary collaboration that we're so reliant on in our field and how that's really reflected in the society. Just like you're saying, people with different backgrounds and different ways of getting to provide care um, ultimately, you know, and then all the different interfaces of the fields. I feel like that's part of the secret sauce of the society. And you mentioned a little bit, um, Erica, how that sort of impacted your, I guess, development or career. But like, if you just take a step back and look at how your professional development has unfolded and opportunities before you have unfolded, how has that collaboration or those networking opportunities within Pixis been able to help you get to where you are today? I think um, two different things. I think the opportunities in Pixis have been great. I've been to most of the meetings. I don't know if I've been to everyone, but mo- most at least this one's in the United States. And I think it allows for ongoing collaboration, hearing what people are doing really real time in the ICU, just not what's published, which tends to lag behind what people are actually doing and thinking um, and knowing people. I think it also helped me just be able to interact with people I mean, ICU is really a team sport, right? You need to be able to interact with surgeons and cardiologists, and you need to realize when you think you know the right thing and when you're not sure and who to talk to, and everybody needs to collaborate because it, it cannot be done by one person, any one person. And so I think learning that um, both clinically and um, kind of on a more social and national and international level has really helped me to, one, not be afraid to ask questions, ask for help, help others. And I think. I think those things are really important and you learn them in the ICU, but it really helps to have a national close-knit group of people. And I hope as things move forward, we obviously need more people in our field that we can somehow keep that kind of smallish feel where people really know each other and can really learn from each other because it's it's really so rewarding. And I mean, it doesn't always go well, but it's so rewarding. And I think there's been so many things that just change quickly. And and mostly because two people are in a room together talking at a meeting and saying, Hey, you know, maybe we should try this or no, we're doing it this way. And, and then getting asked at these meetings, well, are you really doing that? And how's that working? And what's the data? So I think that's one way. And then I think the other thing, I think this organization has been really an impetus for other things um, that have happened in the field, such as multi-center quality collaboratives and those types of things, and really being able to I don't want to say let go of the research, but I think understanding that what happens clinically is really important and sharing those things and sharing our successes and our failures and best practices um, really is moving the field forward, the quality of the field forward more rapidly, I feel, over the last decade than, than earlier. I don't I don't know if you agree with that, Therese. I think that's right. I think it's been a forum, like informally, for people to discuss collaboration and then later on, really formal collaboration, the white papers and the, the nursing manuals. Yeah, completely agree. And that's something else that this society has really impacted is the involvement in nurses in a, in a society. Other people have talked about this, but I think Pixis was probably the first society to integrate nurses as much as physicians and to be so multi you know, multi subspecialty as well. And that's made a big impact, I think, for everyone, for nurses to appreciate what we do and for us to appreciate what nurses do. I think that's been good. In the beginning, it was physicians were members and 
everyone else, nurses, respiratory therapists, trainees were alternate members. And Peter Lawson really felt that um, nursing needed full membership during his presidency. And that was awesome. And then the structure was set up that the president would be either a physician or nurse and the vice president would be either a physician or nurse, the two being different. Two years later, the vice president would become president. So really completely integrated nursing, which was awesome. Yeah, I think that changed the whole society and definitely in, in the positive direction. And to see someone like Peter Lawson, who is so amazing clinically and thoughtful and pro-nursing and integration, it's, you know, it's, uh, there weren't a lot of women doing this when we first started. I felt really, overall, really well supported by my colleagues, all my clinical colleagues. You know, like anyone else, you have to prove yourself when you're in a new situation. But I, I, there's, I think it's really been more collaborative than probably some other more established um, subspecialties. I think in the early days, it was really hard for women. I think Sarah Tabbitt broke the ceiling. I know she said on the former podcast that she got double boarded. And that was key, I think, in that at that time, um, in that place, because her credentials could not be questioned. I think that's what had to happen. And I think that really created space for other women coming up either double-boarded or not. I think she was really the first recognized female cardiac intensivist, or at least, you know, recognized in Boston at the time. Erica, you may have a different light on that. No, I think that's, I think that's right. And I, I think that um, in general, you know, being a few women in a big field is, was not unusual for us prior to cardiac critical care. So just general critical care training, there were, at least when I trained, there were very few women that did that. So I felt by the time that I got there, there had been a few women that really helped. And definitely Sarah, I think Nancy, Therese, a lot of people. Mary Taylor. Yep, Mary and um, Laura. Yeah. Damien, a lot of people. Yeah, I definitely think that Sarah was a big impact. And though I'm not sure that I knew that at the time, you know, I didn't meet some of these women till later, you know, you're training and working and trying to do what you do. And I've met, I've met um, Sarah, Laura, Therese, all these people actually through Pixis. It's not clear how much I would have met them or how well I would have gotten to know them without that. I love hearing all of your stories and this society has been a big part of your lives. Do you have any tips or advice for women who are new to the field, who are joining PCICS, ways to get involved and networking and how to utilize this awesome network of people to your benefit? I think really joining in, joining committees, um, I think that's probably the best way, joining the white paper writing groups, um, you know, other projects, getting involved. I think the networking in and of itself is awesome. Um, and the support of women for women and PIXIS is great. But I think, you know, working on committees and in projects will further enhance involvement and, um, you know, help people in deciding what they want to do and what their passion is and help them in their careers. And in, you know, daily patient care, I thought I'd tell our fellows, I think they're a, a combination of a scientific meeting and a course. 
which is a great combination, I think. And um, a lot of discussion and, and, you know, a lot of good science, but a lot of information on, hi, you know, we do it this way, maybe it'll work for you, which is invaluable. Yes, I would, I would echo that. I would say to attend meeting, the meetings if possible, everyone is welcome at the business meetings, which are tacked on to the last day or somewhere around there. And they're very informal and they're a really interesting way, I think, to see how the society works and get to meet the key players. I think joining committees is great if you can fit that in during your, your training and your junior, your junior faculty years. And some of that now can be done virtually, which is great. And I also think it's important not to be afraid to introduce yourself and meet people because people in this field are very supportive. They want to help you. They want they want you to be involved. And I think that's for women. I don't know if it's the same as when I was junior faculty or starting out, but I was afraid to ask. I was afraid of all these amazing people. And luckily, I went into this, like I said, naively, and I didn't know David Wessel from, you know, from Fred Flintstone. I didn't know who these people were. So I just called, I just emailed them, said, hey, can you train me? I'm kind of think I want to do this. <laughs> and um, hopefully younger women are better at that than I was and um, advocate for everyone, women, uh, men, everyone to, you know, get involved and advocate for themselves. And you'll meet a lot of amazing people. I think it's harder now because it's not as intimate, but I think there's probably so much more that's um, readily available than there was 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm still like so moved by the stories you were just saying about how you had this vision of where you wanted to get to and you don't know how you were going to get there. You just started emailing or picking up the phone and you created a way where there was no way. And you just had the courage to jump in, even if it was to be like a glorified <laughs> secretary taking minutes, how there were other women alongside of you that were, you know, also going through the process. And now looking back, we can really appreciate the courage and the vision that it took to break some of these barriers and to be these active leaders. And I just personally find that so inspiring. And now we're looking to you guys as our leaders in women. And I think that probably the landscape of women in medicine has changed a lot, not just in pediatrics and critical care and cardiology, I think across the board, which is really exciting to see. What would be your advice to other women coming up. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be in medicine. It could even just be in life. When you you have a vision to do something and you're not either sure how to get there or it hasn't done before, maybe it's a research question that hasn't been asked or you're finding it difficult to find support um, because you're still early career for a specific project you wanna do and you have a passion inside or you have an idea. Going through everything you've gone through and coming out I want to say triumphant because that's how it looks on my side. I'm sure there was years and times where it didn't feel that way. But just emerging as someone who is seen as a leader, what would be your advice in general to other women to realize their dreams? Wow, that's a big question. I would say that, again, at the time, we were just doing what we did, right? We were in a world and that's how it was. The majority of our colleagues were men. I mean, my best friends and all of my support were men and they were amazing. There's always challenges, but I think really understanding people should not think there is only one way to get somewhere. If double boarding is the right thing for you and it for Sarah, it was amazing and broke boundaries. And, and there were a lot of other taboos about having children and different kinds of things, or you have to be the triple threat. You have to, you know, 
be in the lab and doing clinical research and great clinically and teaching and all these things. And I think all of those things have importance. You need to decide what you really want and realize that it's okay. And you can be successful in a lot of ways. And most of the women that you'll hear of have done things. Everyone's done them differently. And then in our field as well. So I think there's a lot more opportunity now to do things differently. And I think women now that are training, the people, the fellows that I train now, they're so much less nervous. They're so much more willing to put themselves out there and just say, well, this is what I want. And I, um, so I, I would really encourage that in people because that it took a long time, it took a long time for a lot of us to understand that. But I think there's so many opportunities. And I think just trying to be true to yourself, which is sometimes the hardest thing. And sometimes you don't even know what you want. But the more you can do that and surround yourself with positive people and go the places that you think you fit are important and um, pursuing what you want. And even though sometimes, you know, you have to go through a lot of hurdles and certain channels, you know, you have to go to medical school, you have to do a residency, all those things. Um, I think there's a lot of ways up the mountain. And also, I think there are opportunities that you won't know, and you might not know where you're going to go until you get there. And you can change your mind. You can make changes along the way. Right. Absolutely. I think many people are not doing exactly what they thought they'd be doing out of fellowship. And that's fine. People change. Uh, They find what their passion is and what they're good in. It may not be exactly what they thought when they were, you know, finishing or starting or finishing fellowship. I remember when there was a meeting in London, I think it was 2004, and my husband joined me and we were just walking down the street and I was saying, oh, I haven't you know, I, I'm not promoted. I haven't published enough. And and he says, well, you're helping to build the society. And there's a real there's a real benefit in society building. And that in and of itself is, you know, is something useful and an accomplishment. And I had to hear that, I think, because I, you know, I didn't really, that was just something I was doing. And I was so happy to be part of it. But that was very useful that Um, that there are different ways to have a successful career. The triple threat now, it seems like nobody does anymore. And there's, you know, quality medicine that a lot of people are in and and doing incredible work in that. There's complete clinical with, you know, with with little research. And then, you know, of course, there's still, um, you know, a combination of clinical and in more traditional research, but there's a lot of different ways to, quote, be successful. And I think what Erica was getting at is success really should be what you feel is important. It doesn't have to be defined by by external forces. Sure, if you want to get promoted, you have to do a certain certain set of things, but now there's different ways to get promoted and different tracks to get promoted on. And um, so I think that's all all very positive. One thing I would think of is that I know it's it's come up for me, and especially as I get older, is that I think it's really important for women to support women. And I think that was brought up at the last podcast as well. I, I think a lot of my colleagues have found other women, either other physicians or nurses, not to be supportive and to hold women at different standards than men. I hope that's changing. I still see some of it, but I think the way it's going to change is if from, you know, training on women are supportive of women. And I think that's what's so great about having nurses and physicians as part of the same society to be supportive of each other is really important. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And it's funny to hear you say that you did not think you were successful because to the other people in the outside world, you were obviously one of the one of the people that was uh, impacted the society, right? But I agree. We don't think of our we only think of ourselves sometimes our success in what we've been told or taught. And the older you get, you realize that a lot of things that you're taught, whether it be the quote, only way to do something in the ICU or the only path to professorship, um, right. a lot of times that turns around. So not always what you think, and you need to be open to other opportunities and enjoy the women around you. I think that's hard for us because we all work hard. We're all trying to do our own things. And we're in a field where, you know, everything is intense. You expect everyone to work intensely, and we probably aren't as good as at sometimes mentoring and giving out compliments as we should be because we just expect everybody to be excellent. And that's not really reality. And so I do think we need to support women better. I do think there's improvements coming, I think, in nursing interactions with female physicians, though, and vice versa, though I don't know if that's just because I'm older now. (laughs) You know, it's hard being a young physician around a lot of nurses your same age, Um, but it was probably hard for them, too. So I think a lot of things have changed, and um, I do think the society has done a really nice job with that. Thank you both so much. I do think, Therese, even just the awareness of women supporting women is probably a part of the battle mm-hmm. as we're learning with all these implicit biases that it's like even um, women might even have implicit biases against other women just because right. we're getting all the same messages in society as everyone else. So mm-hmm. I think even just the freedom to talk about it and acknowledge it and that we're human and we have these things is probably a helpful first step in just checking ourselves. Right. I don't think we've touched on that. I forgot to mention when, when I was talking about I guess kind of maybe a diversity inclusion in Pixis is that PCICS has also had an international welcoming and presence, which which um, a lot of societies do. But I think even in you know smaller um, countries trying to promote that, and I'm sure women in a lot of those countries don't have the opportunities we have. So I don't know if we've done much to promote that or or not. But I think there's probably opportunities for not only inclusion of women, but also making sure that we include women of different nationalities, color, religions, and those types of things. Because those are things that a lot of us, I think, probably don't understand and underappreciate their challenges. I completely agree. And I think that's one of the next big challenges of PIXIS is to really make a move for international inclusion. I think Europe is a little difficult because they have their own societies. And it's always been, I think, we've tried to, you know, kind of break into the European group, but Southeast Asia and China and Africa, you know, I think there's incredible potential. And I think that's one of the big challenges. And I think, um, I think we can do, especially with the internet and, and our presence online, um, there's incredible opportunities. And I guess the global South. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for sharing your stories with us. You both spoke beautifully. I enjoyed it and I got so much out of it. I know our listeners will too. Thank you both for your time. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. All right. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk. It's been great. Yeah. Great to meet y'all. Great to meet you guys too. And hopefully we can see each other in person at the next PCICS um, year from now, right? 2022. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, well, one thing uh, you should know about London, meetings in London, the best dinner in the crypts in the caves 
with a lot of wine. Were you at that? Oh yes. Oh my God, Chris. Oh, that like was, under I like know. with um. <laughs> oh, uh, Joan LaRover. Is that Joan LaRover? I think um, she's in Boston now, but she was um, organizing one of the organizers there. Well, that sounds amazing. Cool. Yeah, I would love to have nice dinner in a crib. Yeah. With. <laughs> It was, it was. Well, thank you both so much, Erica and Therese, for speaking with us today on this episode of the Trailblazing Women of PCICS. We enjoyed having you on our podcasts. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.